You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, let me uh, start off. This is always super risky. We're going to do like one of those audience participation interaction pieces. So the good morning went south. So my confidence level for this is at an all-time low. But that's all right. I'm going to lean in anyways. And so here's what I want you to do. Okay, don't let me down twice. I want you to turn to someone on your right or left. You choose. Pair up with someone. If you turn away from your spouse, just know that you are setting yourself up for a long Easter already. Okay, so, so maybe just don't do that. Turn to someone, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to say this word, road, 10 times to them. And then I want them to say it back to you 10 times. Simple instructions, please don't fail, begin. I'm not sure how it's taken some of you this long to say it 10 times, um, but we're going to go ahead and cut it there. Have you, have you uh, as you were talking, have, did you have the experience where somewhere in there, beyond feeling ridiculous as you've gathered together with the church family this morning, uh, where the word, it starts to lose meaning? It starts to sound odd, it sounds a little distant, it it begins to sound less like a word and more like a sound. According to Wikipedia, this phenomenon has a name, and it's a fantastic name. It's called semantic satiation, okay? Take that home. Take it to your Easter party. You will immediately be either the coolest person in the room or someone that they won't talk to for the rest of the day. And so whether you're an extrovert or introvert, it could be a win for you. Semantic satiation is a phenomenon that happens because when our brain receives auditory signals of words, it immediately associates them with images or thoughts or emotions. That's what turns a sound into a word. But it takes some mental energy to fire those synapses every time you do it. And your brain, or at least mine, tends to get a little lazy. And so it'll fire up the first time it hears the sound. It may fire up the second time it hears the the sound, but by the third or fourth, fifth or sixth, it gets tired. And eventually, it gets fatigued enough that it begins to interpret what was once a word with meaning and connotation and emotions as simply a sound. It becomes nonsense because you've heard it one too many times. Now, I love to read biographies. 
And specifically, I love to read missionary biographies and stories of men and women going across the globe to proclaim the good news of Jesus. One of my very favorite is a book called The Spiritual Secrets of Hudson Taylor. It's, it's a biography about this man who went over to China, who revolutionized ministry and mission in China. And there's a little anecdote in the midst of the biography about a time that Hudson Taylor proclaims the gospel to a Chinese native. And this man, he is, he's overwhelmed by the truth that God would step down out of eternity and come for him. And he says to Hudson Taylor in one of the most memorable lines of a book I've ever read, he says to him, how long have you known about this gospel in England? And Hudson Taylor, who's English, he pauses and he said, seven, eight, nine hundred years maybe? And the man looks back at him and he says, what took you so long to come and tell us? My father for 20 years sought the truth and died without knowing it. Hudson Taylor recalls and the rest of it just kind of reflecting on what, what did take us so long. And it must have simply have been that over those seven or eight hundred years, this shocking news had become commonplace. Maybe you can recall the first time that you heard the gospel, or, or, or maybe you were raised in the church and it just feels like a fact that you've always kind of known. But there's a good chance that semantic satiation has set in for you and I when it comes to the truth of the gospel. That the emotion, that the meaning, that the truth, that the connotation has become little more the noise. This morning we are continuing on through our sermon series in the Gospel of John and we are arriving at what might be the most famous and well-known passage or verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But this isn't just one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. It's also one of the most shocking verses in all of Scripture. And today, my prayer for us is that the Lord God would do us the grace of clearing the deck, of giving us pause, and new ears, and a fresh mind to hear what it is the gospel writer is telling us. That on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, we might be overwhelmed anew with exactly who our God is and all that He has done. So here's what I'm asking the Lord this morning to show us three things as we walk through John 3.16 and the five verses that follow, that he would show us the reason, that he would show us the rescue, and he would show us the reward. 
It took me a good half hour to make all of those start with the same letter. The reason, the rescue, the reward, let us pray that the content behind the alliteration is better than the alliteration itself. Let's start with the reason for John 3.16. Here's a question I'm I'm curious as you have your Bible open. Is your copy of John 3.16 in red? Just just nod nod your head if it is. Okay, not it bigger. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to assume if you didn't nod your head that it's because it's not in red and you weren't struggling to figure out whether or not it was in red. Traditionally, these verses have oftentimes been interpreted as the words of Jesus, which is why, depending on your Bible, like mine, they might be in red. But the truth is that while these are the words of God, absolutely, it's likely that they're not words that came from the mouth of Jesus. See, there, there are no quotation marks in the Hebrew and the Greek language. And so we know that Jesus begins to speak in verse 1 with his interaction with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. But we don't know where his words end in the commentary of the gospel writer John begins. If you weren't here last week, we walked through this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law, and he's a ruler even within this class of devoted God followers, the Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus perceives, knowing what is in the heart of every man, woman, and child, That Nicodemus has come because he has one question on his heart. How do I enter into the kingdom? Jesus establishes in his response the need for all people to be utterly changed. Completely reborn to become a new creation in order to enter into the kingdom. And then he doubles down on shocking statements by saying the way that this will happen... The way that this new birth will come about is through the exaltation of the Son of Man, Him, Jesus. And not just spiritual exaltation, not just worship and praise, but Jesus being physically exalted, lifted up upon a Roman cross over the earth for all to see and for those who see and believe to be saved. At John 3.16, it's likely a commentary by the gospel writer John helping us to try and get our arms around what we've just heard. It's as if John, as he's recalling the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, pauses after Jesus said that I will be lifted up, that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And John pauses and goes, okay, just wait. This is too big. We must stop and try and get our arms around what Jesus has just said. John 3.16, this verse that so many of us, if you were raised in the church, know is, is likely John's summary statement, trying to encapsulate what we've just heard in verses 17 through 21 are just him adding more evidence and information to the story. 
John, in his summary statement of 3.16, begins with a statement that gives us the reason. Why in the world this shocking news about Jesus giving his life over? Why he must be lifted up? Why he must become the sacrifice? Or as Jesus himself said, a ransom for many. Why would it occur? And John tells us simply the answer is that God so loved the world. That's why he gave his only son. That's why Good Friday happened. That's why we needed the miracle of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, because God loved the world. Now, there's kind of an interesting thing that happens in the Greek with the word so that we translate. And so depending on your translation, it may say, God so loved the world, or it may say, God loved the world in this way. But regardless of the translation, there's, there's two facts that are being established here. One, God loves. And two, his love is something that we need to get our arms around. Now we're told that God's love is not ambiguous. It's not theoretical. It's just not something out there. But it's something that's directed. It's something specific. God loves the world. Now this is one of those kind of statements that you'll see in, in, in children's storybooks or in storybook Bibles, right? God, he loves the whole world. His love is so big. It's big enough to, to love the whole world. Right, what, what's the, the children's song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. I've been working on Brett for years to sing that. You won't do it. Something about the melody or rhythm is a little complicated. What I'm trying to say is God's, God's love is big. Big love. Big God with big love. And it is a big love by a big God, but he's saying something actually far more important for us. The word that he uses for world is the Greek word cosmos. It's a word that's used throughout the New Testament that doesn't necessarily mean a specific geographic place like the earth. Instead, the word literally means the way that the world works. It encompasses the, 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 the depths even in New Testament it describes the depths of the evil of the world and the evil that is oftentimes found within the hearts of those that inhabit the world. Later on, this same gospel writer, John, in his first epistle will say to believers that they should not give themselves over to the world because this world and whatever is of the world is not of the Father. In fact, it's opposed to the Father. And so what John is saying is, God so loved, what kind of world? Well, it's the world that has been laid out from Genesis to John up until this point. 
It's the world that rejected God, that cursed God, that chose idols that are nothing and incapable of satisfying or providing for us over Him. It's the world and humanity that's so self-obsessed that we treat each other as objects to be used and abused and cast aside, even murdered for our own gain. It's the world that's been repeatedly shown grace by the Lord and yet still refuses to turn away from their sin. It's the world that is full of violence and oppression and greed and abuse and evil. It's the world that's summed up in Genesis 6 verse 5 where it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, that every intention in his thoughts and in his hearts was only evil Continually. John says, that world, God so loves that world. John knows our reaction to this. Wait, God doesn't love that world. Maybe God loves a a, a future version of that world. Maybe he loves the potential of that world, but God can't love a world like that. He can't love people like that. God's reaction to that world must be anger and condemnation and judgment. And John, anticipating our reaction, adds in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, every, every year at Easter, there's all these wonderful articles and podcasts that come out that, that help us believe the truth of the miraculous events of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. It helps to see that there is truth, that there is fact, that there is reason to believe the reality of who Jesus was, the shocking truth that he gave himself over to the cross, and even truth that the resurrection happened. But the hardest thing for us to believe is not that it happened. The hardest thing for us to believe is why it happened. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did the miracle of Easter need to occur? Because God loves a world filled with men and women who are broken and sinful failures. He loves you. Let me say this. He loves you. Not in spite of your sin. He loves you in the midst of it. Let me say that again. Because here's what we always want to do with God's love. Because it feels feels reckless. It feels too much. It feels too high. It feels too big. It feels unsafe without caveats and boundaries where we are at least bringing something to the table. And John says, listen to me. Jesus came 
Because God loves the mess. Because God loves you. I've I've said this before, and it's a, a spiritual exercise that I have to do all the time. And and if you don't believe me, if this is your first Easter Sunday here at Mercy's Door, let me tell you a quick story about last Easter Sunday. Last Easter Sunday, I preached the entire service with my right hand in my pocket. And I preached the entire service with my right hand in my pocket because it was broken. And it was broken Because a few days earlier, in the midst of a really difficult time for Rachel and I in our marriage, at the end of a heated argument, I walked off and I punched a door and I broke my hand. And I went to the doctors and they got an x-ray and they told me it was broken and they said, let us cast it. And I told them, no. You know why? Because I had to preach the next day. And how in the world was I going to stand up here with a broken hand because of my own anger and sin? And so I I didn't get a cast. I hid my hand in my pocket. And I preached. And I preached because I couldn't get my arms around the fact that God loved me in the midst of that place. Take a second, close your eyes and pause. Allow your mind to wander back to that last failure, that sin that you've been caught in, the brokenness in the midst of your life or your marriages, the way that you have failed to be the type of man or woman that you want to be and hear the words of your Father speaking over you in that very moment I love you. I love you so much that I will send my son for you. This is the reason of John 3.16. But the reason leads us to the rescue of John 3.16. You know, almost every story follows the same pattern. There's a problem that must be solved, and someone that's willing to try and solve it. And in any good story, at least in my opinion, the story ends with the problem being solved. And so I'm just going to put my foot down right now. If you're a fan of one of those like stories where the person misses the goal at the end of the sports movie, shame on you, okay? And I would love to do some counseling with you. Find out what happened early in your life that you don't like the good guy to win at the end of the story. Right, like almost every story, every romantic comedy, the guy always ends up with the girl. Right, Every good sports story, they win at the end. But typically, we judge those types of stories by the, 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 the extent of the problem. And the longer and the harder that the journey is to go and solve the problem, the more epic the story is. Right? I, I think of stories like The Lord of the Rings or, or movies like Gladiator or Saving Private Ryan. 
When we read John 3.16, it doesn't necessarily read like an epic story. Yes, we've just talked about how unfathomable God's love is. But what must be overcome by his love just doesn't seem that big. John seems to just kind of brush it aside. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, he won't perish. But this is not a simple matter. This isn't a slight change of course. It's not a new decision to live differently or act differently or to finally trust the Lord. Look at how John extrapolates how big the problem is before us in verses 18 through 20. He says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him, he's condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, he hates the light. And he does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. You know, you'll oftentimes hear in a secular culture, or maybe you've thought this even yourself, that the, the judgment of God doesn't seem to match with the actions of humanity. Feels too big, too harsh, too disproportionate. How can a loving God condemn people to death? But John here reframes the problem for us and helps us to see it clearly. It's not that we somehow know we need rescuing and yet God refuses to give it, but in fact, we have refused the rescue. And we have no desire to be a part of it. And to have no part of the God of life is to give ourselves over to death. The Greek word for perish here literally means to be brought to an end. Like the last flickering flames of a candle before it's extinguished and can never be relit. You know, God gave humanity, gave Adam and Eve in the garden a simple choice. In effect, he said to them, be with me. Be with me, the God of life. Be with me, the God that takes chaos and makes order. The God who brings light out of darkness. The God who sustains and provides, who cares and loves Or be without me and choose a world where you are God and where the giver and sustainer of life is not. And Adam and Eve and every human afterwards chose ourselves. We chose death. You know, the law of inertia says that an object in motion will tend to stay in motion 
unless another object of equal or greater force acts against it. And John tells us that the world, you and I, are speeding at terminal velocity away from the Lord. Away from life. And here in John 3.16, we read that the Father has given Christ to halt us in our tracks. Listen, you haven't gone too far. You are not running too fast in the wrong direction. You have not put too much distance between you and your Father because Christ has come to rescue us, to keep us from death by His death. The reason is the unfathomable love of God and the rescue seems impossible. But our God through Christ is a God of the impossible. And this leads us to the reward of John 3.16. You know, I read an article not too long ago that said, in the coming century, humans will live to be 150 years old. Just let that sink in. I, I had a conversation with my, my parents about that when I read it, and their response were, ugh. I, it was far more intelligent and wise than that. But that was the gist of it. I don't want to live to 150. That sounds terrible. Right? We undervalue the beauty of John 3.16 because we don't understand the reward that's being promised. John promises for all those that would believe in the out landish gift of Jesus will have eternal life. And perhaps that just doesn't resonate with us because we imagine the continuation of a life that we have right now. And maybe at its best, that feels unfulfilling, and at its worst, it feels utterly depressing. Maybe we undervalue the reward because we don't quite know what the next life will be like. Maybe we know it'll be different than this life, but what fills our head sounds like images of harps and clouds and one long endless church service. Some of you are thinking, will Michael still be preaching this same sermon there? The answer is yes. I'd love to invite you. Right, there's a great big theology of the beauty of the world to come. There's a great big theology of just how great the new heavens and the new earth will be. Read Revelation 21 and 22. It's going to be a world of beauty and peace and wholeness, a paradise like no other. If Revelation 21 and 22 feels just a little hard to get your arms around, then read The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. It'll give you the same sense. 
But John, here in this gospel, and really throughout his entire gospel, he tends to focus in, to narrow in on one specific element of this eternal life. The, the Greek here for eternal life doesn't, doesn't mean life that goes on forever. It actually means life of the age to come. Of the eternal age that we are waiting for. And John wants us to know one key reward that we are waiting for in the age to come. And he tells us in John 17 in the words of Jesus himself. Where Jesus says this, eternal life is this. Now let me pause and allow you just to kind of think to yourself. What is Jesus about to say next? How does Jesus define eternal life? Well, here's what he says. Eternal life is this. That they, humanity, might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life is this. That we would know, truly know, intimately know, and be with God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John emphasizes this in verse 21. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. And here's this so important phrase all throughout the New Testament, in God. John says the key to being in eternal life is being in God. I've been uh, rereading a book that I love recently called Abba's Child by an author Brennan Manning. If you haven't read it, read it. It will challenge some things, hopefully in a beautiful way. But the book and the author explores why it's so hard to live as a true child of God. We're promised in John 1 that for all those that do believe, we would be given the right to be called children of God. And so the premise is, why is it so hard? Most of us don't act like children of God in heaven. We act like orphans. We strive. We struggle. We believe that if we don't do it, it won't be done. And if we don't care for ourselves, no one will. And that if we're not lovable, we won't be loved. Most of the book explores how our hearts truly desire to be loved by God, but to truly be loved by Him, we've got to figure out what it looks like to live with Him. You know, you can say all day long that God loves you and that He's here with you and that you are His beloved child and that He has forgiven you and that you will be provided for and He will lead you. And if you feel like He is distant and out there, you will never believe it. What does it look like to know him face to face, to truly speak to him, to hear his heart for you, to be led by him in a way that gives confidence where we have no doubt what he's doing and where he's going? And John tells us the gift of eternal life is the gift that there is coming a day where you will see him face to face. 
where you will be with him forever. Augustine, the church father, said, You made us for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. So take heart. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not come to an end but would finally find rest, finally, truly, fully be with the Lord. Listen, I've got five kiddos who I love and I love watching the Lord raise them up. My kids are smart. And so they've, they've learned to do some things to deal with their mom and I. And so for the most part, they've learned that when dad gets on a soapbox, and I'm a preacher, and so what you need to understand is there are a lot of soapboxes in our house, okay? Like, it's weird, there's always one right at hand when I need one. And so my kids, for the most part, have learned that when I get on my soapbox, the best thing for them to do is nod their head as if they get it and they agree. Mm, yes, 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 Dad. I got you. I hear you. I'm grieved by what you are saying. Moved in my inward being. Compelled to go and do. Mm. They've never said that, by the way. <laughs> but a man can dream. They know that the correct answer is yes. I understand. Yes, I get it. And you know what? Most times, they don't. Let me give you just one piece of Easter advice. You don't get this. And neither do I. We don't really understand the magnitude and the beauty of the coming of Christ. We don't really understand his sacrifice for us. And we don't really understand the victorious resurrection. We don't really, truly, always believe the gospel. Perhaps we do in moments, but you and I are gospel amnesiacs. We forget it again and again and again. We struggle to believe it when we fail and when we sin. We struggle to believe it when the world is marked and our lives are marked with suffering. We struggle to believe it when it seems like the world can offer us more joy or more pleasure or more contentment than the Lord ever could or will. But the beauty of the gospel is it's true, even when you don't believe it. That our God is good, even when you can't see it. That Christ has come, even when you don't understand it. And that He is leading us home whether we get how beautiful it is or not. God really did so 
love the world. So love you and me in the midst even of our sin and failure that He gave the one eternal perfect Son. And He did it so that whoever trusts in Christ might not be given over to the curse of sin and death, but instead be brought into His presence forever. But finally, truly be satisfied in the Lord. Church, hear this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but find eternal life. Thank God that's true. Pray with me.